Matthew chapter 22, and we are going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 34. It's a really short section, and I was telling the folks on Wednesday night that I was tempted to just go all the way to the end of the, the chapter, but there just seems to be too much of a break in between the two parallels, and I'm not good enough to figure out how they connect uh, and, and make it uh, feel like we just threw it in reverse uh, while we were going 50 miles an hour down the highway. So we'll just pick it up next week and, and look at the last little section. I had mentioned, oh, it seems like a very, very long time ago, that we would uh, be in Matthew only for a little while longer, and then we'd move on into Job. And I think we're getting near to that point, um, just to give it a little bit of uh, something, a variety, if you will. We'll definitely come back and finish it. I know some of you have asked about uh, things that you know that are coming up in Matthew. We're probably not going to get that far this time around, but next time around we certainly will. Let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to bless time in His Word. Father, we come today and we come hungry to be fed by Your words. You have described it to us as honey and as milk, as meat, as bread. Father, we come desiring to feast on your word. Nowhere else in this world can we be filled and satisfied except in your word. And so we come this morning desiring to be fed. I desire as your minister to feed the flock of God. I pray, Father, that it would not be for substitutes with man's wisdom or man's words or man's reasoning, but it would be the pure and undiluted and only satisfying word that comes from you. So I pray that you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we might behold the wondrous things from your law. We might eat the words and be satisfied. They would be sweet in our, in our mouths and filling in our belly. We pray this all because of Jesus and through Him. Amen. There are many thousands and thousands of laws in the United States uh, federally and, and, and state to state. I tried to look. If you do a quick Google search, how many laws in the United States? It's somewhere between 15,000 and 50,000 thousand laws. So it's not a really good estimate. Uh, it's a lot of a lot of thousands of laws. Some of them are more famous than others. I'm sure that if I were to ask you uh, to name a law, you could you could come up with some we would all come up with some of the pretty obvious ones, but then there are some very obscure laws that um, are still just as as binding and yet not as familiar to us. Some laws are more impactful than other laws. Some certain laws have had greater influence and have done more to shape and direct our country than others have. But the whole U.S. legal system is a very extensive, complex, and very confusing set of rules. I just learned this week that there's a difference between a law and a rule. And uh, I don't know the difference. I just know that there is a difference. And, and there's there's so many just uh, complexities, and, and uh, that's why we have uh, very, very smart people uh, who 
practice law and take advantage of the law by finding those loopholes because it is such a complex system. I wonder if I were to ask you, what is the most important law that we have in America? I wonder how you would answer that. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? What is the most important law that we have? Maybe you would say the freedom of religion, that, that, that liberty that we have to be assembled as we are right now. Maybe you would say it's the freedom of speech, which all kind of go together, right, as we speak about the things that we believe about, and nobody can really stop us. Maybe, I'm sure some of you would say it's that Second Amendment, give me a chance to carry and to bear arms, shoot those arms, make stuff blow up, get my, my deer in the fall, or to feed my family, whatever it may be. Right now, there's a, a lot of people that are talking about the, the whole civil rights issue. And uh, many people would say that the Civil Rights Act in the 1960s uh, was the greatest, most impactful law in America, making, making uh, all people, at least on paper, equal. And a lot of people today still continue to fight for that equality and that uh, fair treatment. In Israel, in Jesus' day, and, and well beyond uh, before his day, it was a very common question to ask, among scholars at least, what is the most important law? In Israel's time, it was a little bit more complex, though they didn't have as many laws as we have. We're talking both in a legal perspective and in a theological perspective. Because we are talking about the law, asking this question is a legal question, but because Israel was governed by God's law, this was also a spiritual question or a theological question. And it was very common for people to ask the question, what is the most important law? And they would debate this uh, over and over again. And this is the question that we find brought to Jesus. And so this morning we'll read through that and I want you to notice the question and then Jesus' answer and, and specifically how Jesus gives this answer in three uh, distinct Parts, And as we work through this passage this morning, I want us to consider how the greatest command is possibly the most simple command, and yet at the same time, the hardest one to keep. So look at Matthew 21, uh, 22 and verse number 34. Hear God's Word. But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is a very powerful passage, a very uh, impactful passage we'll consider this morning together. First of all, notice the question that the, the people bring him, the greatest command. What is the greatest command? Now, the Pharisees, it says, as is is, uh, we, we kind of begin the story there, we see that they have 
gather together in light of what uh, just uh, happened with the Sadducees. If you've been following our, our trek through 21 and 22, we see how uh, several groups of people have approached Jesus in the temple during the final week of his life, and they are testing him. They're trying to, they're trying to trap him in his words. Just a brief review. for uh, It's been a while since we were at a few of these passages. Uh, the first challenge was from the priests and the elders. And they came to Jesus and they were questioning his authority. And Jesus answered them with three parables, uh, all regarding the authority that he had to do and teach the law. Then the second uh, challenge was, approached, uh, was brought to him by the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they wanted to challenge Jesus on his faithfulness to Scripture. Should we pay the tax or not? That was their, that was their question. Then the Sadducees, as we saw last Sunday, uh, they came to Jesus and their question was more about Jesus' faithfulness to the Scriptures, at least as they saw them. They believed that the, uh, the Pentateuch was the, the, at least the primary means of God's Word, if, not the only, uh, the, if that was not the only piece of God's Word. And it's, it's question whether or not they accepted the rest of that. And so they were going to question Jesus whether or not the resurrection is something he believes or not because they didn't believe in that. They didn't believe in it because they didn't believe the Scriptures taught it. Although we saw several examples last week, and not even all of them, how the Bible does teach throughout that there is a resurrection. Well, now the Pharisees have come back one last time. Kind of different in the last time that the Pharisees approached them, because if you remember, when the Pharisees and the Herodians came, it was the disciples of the Pharisees. So in my mind, I'm thinking junior Pharisees. These are Pharisees in training, PITs, and they are uh, coming uh, maybe to catch Jesus off guard because he's not dealing with the with the, 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 the A team. He's not dealing with the varsity. He's dealing with junior varsity, so maybe he's going to lower his guard down or whatever. But he doesn't, obviously. Jesus passed the test every single time. Now the Pharisees have come back, and a lawyer among them asked Jesus this question. And the question that they're going to ask is about Jesus' judgment of the law. How does Jesus understand the law? We know that He teaches the law. They teach the law. They're, they're teachers. They're, 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 they're the people who, who give the law of Moses to the people. As in chapter 23, we'll see that they're the ones that, that sit in Moses' seat and give the law and give the interpretation of it. And they want to test Jesus on His judgment. How does He understand the law? So this lawyer uh, speaks for the group and asks Jesus the question, what is the great commandment in the law? And I've wondered this throughout the week, and I'm not fully settled on an answer, but I wonder, what was it that they were expecting Jesus to say? In the other examples, we see uh, kind of behind the scenes what they were hoping Jesus would do. When he says, pay taxes, when they ask, should we pay taxes or no? They're hoping he says yes, so that he can look disloyal to Israel, or they're hoping he'll say no, so that he can get in trouble with Caesar. So there's their two there are two hopes there. One, one way or the other, it's going to work, and yet Jesus escapes somehow. Well, now they come to Jesus, and they're asking this question, and it's a good question. It's a valid question. It's one that's been asked many, many times before. We do know that they were to test him there. It says there in verse, uh, verse number 34 there that they had gathered, uh, I'm sorry, verse 35, they gathered to ask him a, a question to test him, but exactly what they were hoping he would say is unclear. Maybe they were trying to trip him up with legalities because we're talking about the law. And, and imagine if, if, if I were to ask you that question and 
uh, about the U.S. law, what's the greatest law, and then you were to say, say what you think would be the greatest law, and then I would have something to come back and say, no, how could you say that that's the greatest law when this over here has done so much to directing to, to shape our country, or whatever it may be. Maybe that's what they were looking to do. Uh, maybe they were uh, trying to get Jesus to slip up in his answer and inadvertently abolish some other law or re reposition the importance and priorities of God's law. I don't know exactly what they were doing, but we know that they were there to ask Jesus this question as a test. And the question that they ask is, as again, is a valid question. Good question to ask. Uh, they had counted up uh, 613 commands in God's law. You read through all of the first five books, that's, what they, that's the number that they had come to. Do's and don'ts. Laws of God. And they want to know what matters the most. Certainly they're all God's laws. Certainly they're all valid. But it is, it is not in, in a correct or inappropriate to, to determine if some laws are greater than other laws. Or in the words that we find throughout the Scriptures, some laws are weightier and some laws are less. Uh, and it's natural to want to know this. And they weren't wrong even. Jesus even says that, uh, acknowledges that some laws are weightier than others. If you skip ahead to chapter 23, when Jesus is, is pronouncing the woes on the Pharisees, one of the things he says to them is he says, you tithe of your, your mint and your, and your dill and your cumin and all these different spices, but you omit the weightier matters of the law. And that's the word he uses. And so he's not saying, and he says, I'm not telling you to stop doing this. I'm saying you should have done both. So, all of God's laws should be kept, but Jesus himself admits some laws have more weight than other laws. Some laws are greater. Some laws are lesser. And that's what they're asking Jesus here. Another, another uh, example is if you think about the punishments that God, uh, uh, the judgments that God laid out in each of his laws. The judgment for committing murder was a lot different than the judgment for cooking uh, an animal in its mother's milk. Both of those were forbidden by God in His law, but they came with different consequences. And so we see Jesus answering this question now. This was a question that was highly debated. It was not unanimously agreed upon. And so they're not just trying to get Jesus' opinion here. Again, remember they're trying to test Him. But there certainly is uh, room to argue, at least in their minds, with whatever Jesus has to say. So let's see how Jesus answers. And as I said, he answers with three distinct statements. And so that's how we'll look at them this morning. The first statement, he says, is to love God wholly or love God completely. When I say love God wholly, I mean like the whole, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. Love God wholly. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is an all-inclusive love. It's not 99%. It's not most of it. It's complete. It's, 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 it's universal love from you. Everything about you. And he's not identifying different pieces of you that you need to give. These, these areas, the heart and the soul and the mind and the strength, they all overlap with one another. And by doing so, it's, it's, it's an acknowledgement of the whole person. And so when we read this in Deuteronomy 6, as Larry read for us earlier, or we read it here as Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5, He is saying and recognizing what God said from the very beginning, that we are to love God with the whole being. Not with a superficial love on the outside. Something that looks like love, but in the inside I know it's not love. Like when you were told to 
give your great Aunt Ruth a kiss. Um, you said I love you, but you didn't really want to be that close to great Aunt Ruth with your lips puckered up, right? You, the love was superficial in a way. Um, I'm sorry if you have a great Aunt Ruth. I tried to pick a name that was... Uh, did anybody have a great Aunt Ruth? The, the, the idea of a complete or whole love is required by God. And just to kind of as a side note here, if, if those are people who would say, well, you can't require love and you can't command love, God certainly does. That's the law. Love God with all your being. And as I said, this comes from Deuteronomy 6.5. And Jesus is quoting uh, one of the most familiar passages to any Jew. This was, this was a part of the Shema. The Shema was a prayer that the, that the Jews would recite and still recite every morning and every evening. The word Shema means here in Hebrew, and that's how the Shema starts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it goes on. The Shema is actually a very lengthy prayer. It's made up of three different passages. First in Deuteronomy 6, which, which what Larry read for us, and that teaches what to do. And then Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 to 21, teach what will happen if you do these things. You can look at that later. And then Numbers 15:37 talks about reminding yourself to do what you're supposed to do. And that's where we'll talk about the tassels and, the, and binding them on their forehead and their hand and all of those things. And so these three passages of the of the of Deuteronomy and of and of Numbers are called the Shema, and they would recite this as a prayer morning and night. And uh, as I said, people uh, Jews still do this to this day. Those who are who are uh, pious and, and following uh, following the Torah. And so when Jesus uh, quotes this to them, they're very familiar with this passage. They know exactly what he means, and and no doubt many of them agree with him that this is the greatest commandment. And when Jesus says that this is the greatest commandment or the first commandment, He's not saying it's the first one given. He's not talking about the first one that was given in a chronological sense, but rather the one that is most primary. The, the one foundational command, the greatest command, the primary command, is love God wholly. The second statement that He makes is to love your neighbor accordingly. He says, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This also comes from the Scriptures, but it doesn't come from the Shema. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And if you go back and read that sometime, you'll see that exact phrase in there, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and it's about a lot of social uh, rules and laws that God lays out for His people, that He wants them to treat each other as they treat themselves. It's very similar to the, the golden rule, Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, this is this is Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just that we are to love others, but he gives a qualifier here. As you love you, love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. Now, I'm sure that most of us uh, have enough social grace to not admit how much it is we love ourselves in public. Uh, we prefer number one uh, quite often. It's natural. It's easy. It's most convenient for me to show myself the greatest uh, deference, the greatest uh, amount of, of, of care and, and attention. It's easy to ignore others, but I, I rarely ignore me. Right now, I don't know who's hungry and who's not, but I know how I'm doing. 
Uh, I don't know who is hot and who is cold, but I know how I'm doing. And that's really what we care most about. We care about ourselves. And Jesus is not condemning this. He is saying, though, that to the degree that you love yourself, and to the degree that you care about you, you are to love those around you the same way. Now, Jesus has already previously explained to us who our neighbor is. In Matthew 5, He talks about loving your enemies. Saying that if you love those who love you, what, great, what good is that? I mean, the Gentiles do that. The pagans do that. But when you love your enemy, that's when you show that you're children of God. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan story. And He describes that the neighbor is the one that's near me that needs my help. So when Jesus quotes here from the Levitical law saying that we are to love our neighbors ourselves, He's basically saying love everybody. You're supposed to love your, your, your friends. You're supposed to love your family. You're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to love the people that live next door to you. You're supposed to love the people that come in contact with you at work or on the street or wherever they may be. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And not just the guy that shares a, a, a backyard or a side yard with us. To the same degree that we love ourselves, we are to love each other. So let's just recap for a moment. So far, Jesus has said that we are to love God with everything that we are and everything that we have and to love our others as much as we love ourselves. And Jesus is saying here that these are not one and then the next one is not as important, but it's pretty up there, pretty far up there. He is, when he says there that it is like unto it, he is saying that these two commands go together. Now, Jesus is not the first person or at least the only person to come up with this. If you read, uh, if you read Mark's version of the same account, the lawyer agrees with Jesus' answer. When, when Jesus gives his answer, he says, you're right, teacher. You've truly said he is one. There is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. So, when Jesus says his answer, Matthew doesn't record how the Pharisees respond, but Mark does, and he says they were like, right on, you got it. In another passage in Luke chapter 10, the same chapter we read about the Good Samaritan, this same question is posed, but it's from Jesus to a lawyer. And Jesus asks the lawyer, how do you read the law? How do you understand the law? In effect, what's the great commandment? And the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He puts these two together, and Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom. Because they understood how important these two things are, and yet maybe did not understand their significance. Jesus says here, when he says that the second is like it, the first, he is saying that these two commandments stand together. They are, they are, they are, are linked together inseparably. Love for God is a command of God. It is required. You are to love God. And it is displayed through obedience. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. But And, and part of that obedience is love for neighbor. I would direct you, and I'm going to read a few places from it this morning, but I would direct you to read 1 John chapter 3 and chapter 4 uh, sometime maybe this afternoon or sometime this week and, and see how John puts it real uh, uh, in real practical terms, what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is clearly tying love for God and love for people. You can't have 
one or the other. They're supposed to go together. And although the Scriptures may teach us many things about what it means to love, love God, it's clear at least this much that it means to love your neighbor. Because he's, what he's saying is that you cannot keep the first commandment, to love God, without keeping the second commandment, to love your neighbor. They're inseparable. Now, we could debate, we're not going to, but we could talk about, is it possible to love your neighbor without loving God? Some would say no, because love is from God. Others would say, well, I know people that don't know Jesus, but they love their family, and we're not going to argue over that. But what we can be sure of is that it is not possible to love God if you are not loving your neighbor. I told you I would read a few places from 1 John. and I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 11. John says, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He says in verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He says in chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. They're inseparable. If we're going to say, as we've done in church, as we do through our songs, as we do just by our coming to church, we are saying, I love God. We say that with our words. We say that kind of with our actions. But where it's proven is we're outside of the church. On Monday, when we are interacting with other people, do you love God? Show me by loving your neighbor. And notice that this is not a passive action. This idea of love. It's not a feeling. I have to have warm, gooey feelings for my neighbor. I have to have a, a good, a good uh, thoughts and feelings towards him. No. To love my neighbor is an active thing. Not a passive thing. It doesn't mean don't have anything against your neighbor. A lot of people would say, well, I don't have anything against those people. Uh, those people over across the street, I don't have anything against them. I don't know them, but so I don't have any problems with them. Or uh, different different people. We, we're we're in a, uh, a time in our history right now where where race is once again in the forefront of most everybody's minds. And I think a lot of people would say, I don't have anything against the the black community or the white community, the Asian community or the Muslim community or the whoever it may be. I don't have anything against the other church. Uh, the, the, the across the street, or I don't have anything against my neighbor or my, my co-worker who's, who's, who's a different fan of a football team, and I don't have anything against them, but that's not love. Love doesn't mean you don't have anything against the person. Love doesn't mean that you don't do wrong. I don't do anything, I don't bother him, and he doesn't bother me. That's fine, but that's not love. Love does not mean you tolerate each other. You just leave each other alone. You would agree to stay in your separate corners and, and stay away from each other. No, that's not love. Love is active and intentional. It's doing something intentionally and actively for the other person. If that's how we define love, then let's ask ourselves the question, am I truly loving as God wants me to love? If that's how love is, then is love, is my love for God real? 
Is my love for a neighbor real? I don't get a pass by, well, I didn't do anything mean to him, so I must love him. No. I didn't say a cruel word to their face, so it must count as love. No. If you're married, you know that none of that counts for I love you, right? Gotta be, you gotta show it in positive ways, not in negative ways. Do we love like this? Could your neighbor person that lives across the street from you or the person sitting across the row from you right now or a co-worker, whoever it may be, could your neighbor or my neighbor describe my love as accurate? Or would they say, well, we don't really have any kind of interaction whatsoever. And if that's true, I don't know how we can be loving our neighbor. It's easy to profess love for God at church What's going to happen tomorrow? It's easy to profess my love for my neighbor in theory. What about in the moment? John writes, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Finally, the third statement that Jesus makes is that all of the other commands hang or depend on these two commands. That's what he says there in verse number 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Notice how far Jesus has gone in answering the question here. He's not just said what their, what their greatest command is. He also gave the second greatest command. And then he linked them together and said that every other command depends on these two laws. Love is the greatest command, but it's not the only Command. Jesus is not saying that loving God and loving your neighbor is an alternative to obeying God's law. That is the law. That is what God requires. This is a word called antinomianism. You may, you may have heard that before. You may not have. It's a big word that just means that there's no law. It's anti-law. And there are a lot of Christians even today who profess to be Christians that believe that because I'm under grace, I don't have to do anything. Now, and, and not talking about for salvation, they're just saying, I don't have to do anything at all. I can live however I want because there's always grace. Apostle Paul talks about that. Are we to continue to live in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But there's a lot of people that would believe that it's okay, we're no longer obligated to keep God's commands because we're not under the law, we're under grace. The Scriptures do teach us that we're not under the law, we're under grace. But not in that way. Jesus Himself said, I did not come to abolish the law. Matthew 5, He says, I came to fulfill the law. As a door hangs upon its hinges, the entire Old Testament depends on these two commands. Loving God. Loving your neighbor. One said, one, someone said, nothing in Scripture can cohere or even be truly obeyed unless these two are observed. Love is the way then that we fulfill the law. I had several passages I was going to read, but I won't read them for sake of time. Let me just read from, Psalm, uh, from, from 1, from Romans 13. Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, love gives life to your religion. It makes your religion, your professed religion, to be more than cold and sterile and dead. Since it's Father's Day, I didn't plan it for it to be on the same day, but there is a strong connection, as we saw uh, reading from Deuteronomy 6, that there is a very strong connection between keeping God's laws and a father's responsibility to teach those laws. Everybody is obligated to keep God's law, but we as fathers have an added responsibility to not only keep them, but to teach them to our children. Let me just close with this better question. The Pharisees asked a good question. What is the greatest command? It's a great question. But a better question is this. How can we keep God's commands? How could we possibly keep the commands that God has given to us? Because see, Jesus isn't making it easier on us. He's not saying, you know what, there's 613 laws, forget about them, just, just do these two. Even if that were the case, He didn't make it easier, I would make a case that He has made it harder. Harder. Luke 11.42, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they had neglected justice and the love of God. Matthew 19, He told the rich young ruler the same thing. Rich young ruler thought he had done all the commands. We're a lot like that. We have a very strong sense of how our performance and a very low view of what God actually requires of us. We lower the bar of what God requires and we raise our, our, our performance level so that it looks a lot better. When in reality, the Scriptures elevate the law of God to a, high, a higher degree than we could even see and our performance is miserably low. Can we truthfully say that we love God wholly? Could you honestly say that you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength? One very respected theologian said, there has not been five seconds that I've been alive on this earth that I've loved God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and strength. Because we're sinful people. Jesus actually makes our sinful nature clearer by giving these two commands and our condemnation for disobedience more deserving by these two commands. One said if, this, if these are the greatest commands, then disobeying them would be the greatest sins. So how should we respond when we read these verses? First of all, our first, I think our first response should be, I can't. I can't do this. I cannot love God with all my heart. I can try. And I can be maybe maybe 80%. 99.9%. God says, doesn't matter. All or nothing. We all fall short. Our next response then would say that the Gospel says that Jesus did for me. Jesus did obey all the law. On my behalf. In fact, not only did He obey for me, He took my blame. He did all the obeying, and I did all the disobeying, and Jesus says, you can have my obedience, and I'll take your disobedience and go to the Calvary for you. Finally, in Christ. Our response should be, through Christ, by His Spirit, I will. I will keep His law. 
I will do it. doesn't mean I'm going to every moment of the day. I'm still a sinner. I'm still going to fall. I'm still going to fail. But we confess. We, 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 get, we find cleansing. We move on. And we say, you know what? From this point forward, I will endeavor to keep the law because by God's Spirit, I can please Him. This is the love of God. We keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. John writes, and I'll close with this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, love of God was made manifest among us. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So may God give us the grace both to love Him and our neighbor as He commands and requires us to do.